This is STEM Punk. Christy and Tom here chatting with Ansi Thresher. Tell us what you do. What I do. Okay, um, so I'm a PhD student at uh, UC Callum San Diego in California. Um, I'm just finished my third year out of five or six years. Um, so long. I know. American PhDs take forever. Um, but uh, so I'm at UCSD because um, my supervisor there is one of the world experts on the philosophy of time. Um, and there's a massive philosophy of physics community in Southern California. The uh, other big one being at uh, Oxbridge. So um, yeah, so I'm, I'm hanging in California. I'm, I've just finished coursework um, and now I'm moving into writing a thesis. Um, and my area of expertise is broadly philosophy of physics um, with some other areas of interest in like feminist science, um, game theory, uh, some Bayesian stuff. Um, but my specialty is like philosophy of physics uh, sort of working on a couple of different like branches in that. So I specialize in philosophy of time is one of my areas. Um, my supervisor is really into it. I'm really into it. Um, that sort of manifests as either a lot of talking about like time travel um, and sort of the soft side of that. And then like on the hardcore side of that, uh, I'm interested in or I'm working on the difference between uh, space and time, um, why the two are different. Given we talk about space time as like one single unified thing in physics, uh, but there are clearly differences between space and time. Um, I'm sort of interested in why the two differ, like what it is in physics that differentiates time from space, why time is one dimensional, directional, like all this sort of thing where space is not. Um, and then uh, I'm also writing a paper right now uh, with my supervisor on why we perceive time as directional um, and why uh, what our perceptions of time are like, like how physics informs our perception of time being sort of this like difference between the past, present, and the future, why the present seems like a sort of ontologically privileged, we see this sort of flow happening. Um, so I'm, my supervisor and I are sort of working this paper right now about uh, the differences between space and time and our perception, why they're also quite similar, like these sort of the same areas of the brain to sort of investigate both or to interact with both the spatial aspect of the world and the temporal aspect of the world. Um, and then uh, finally I'm, I'm working on a project right now on uh, completely unrelated to time to do with gravitational waves. Um, so um, there's this uh, very old debate, goes back to the Leibniz-Clark debates, um, you know, by proxy Newton, um, about whether or not space-time itself is real, right? Like, is this sort of this, like, fundamental object called space-time? And uh, a lot of the stuff that, you know, was sort of talked about during the Leibniz-Clark debate is sort of outdated. We aren't really, like, it's not really relevant to molecular like, using Newtonian physics. It's not really that relevant anymore. Um, so uh, I'm working on gravitational waves because it seems like they give us a different type of insight and sort of like whether or not we should take space time to be fundamental whether it's just this useful mathematical tool that actually just like sort of um can be replaced by thinking about the relationship between objects rather than thinking of them situated as in space time um so those are my major projects right now wow okay i am um, i got a <laughs> quite varied group of things <laughs> I, I got one question yeah. uh, uh, no sorry many questions <laughs> it's it's cool to have you out here to have a chat and it's about time. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, sorry. no, that uh, was terrible. I'm writing okay, a paper. I have a real question with that title. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm, honestly, I'm going to do that. Sorry, keep going. Right. My real question is: <laughs> when you write papers or you do research in these areas, how do you do it? Because when you do research in physics, you go and you do an experiment or something that gets you some data, and then you analyze the data and you come to conclusions. How do you gather? data about time or space time or whatever you're doing 
Yeah, so um, this is a big aspect of uh, philosophy of physics is sort of work. So I'm in a philosophy department um, with my physics degree. I'm sort of working in these areas. Um, and uh, very little of it is experimental. Um, and most people I know in uh, philosophy of physics are physicists who sort of escaped into philosophy um, because they're really interested in these fundamental questions. So it's a bit closer to like theoretical physics than like experimental physics. Um, most people are working with uh, the raw mathematical theorems. Um, so some of the work I do um, is literally me just taking the math of relativity or quantum mechanics and trying to manipulate it to see what comes out um, based on some ideas or thoughts I have. Um, but a lot of it's reading physics papers. Um, most of the work I do is like I just have an entire hard drive of like gravitational wave papers right now that I'm just like working my way through and I'm working my way through the math and I'm trying to get my head around the math. Um, and then uh, a lot of what I do and what philosophy does um, and is more about the approach we take to these problems um, where you try and sort of like pull it apart into its component pieces and see how they click together. Because um, a lot of uh, fundamental physics has a lot of inherent contradictions and flaws associated with it. So it's all about um, taking all these like various papers and pieces of data and sort of the work that physicists are doing um, and trying to clarify and work through the kinks involved with it. Um, so yeah, for example, I've just overloaded on gravitational wave papers, um, but I'm, I'm working on a problem that's um, a bit more sort of philosophical, right? The, whether or not space-time is real or not. Um, and so I take all of this stuff that people are already writing about physics and I'm trying to apply it to new problems. Um, so yeah, so most of my research basically involves like reading a lot of physics papers and math papers and I still take physics classes. I still go over to the physics department at UCSD and like hang out with them and chat with them about stuff and like it, it's yeah, it's it's very like fundamental theoretical physics. That's sort of the closest. Is there an example of something that we used to think was a thing and then people like you put your head to it and have shown that it's not a thing? Like I'm sure there is, but I just can't think of one at the moment. Yeah, so um a lot of the problems that sort of my area work on are things like um, interpretations of quantum mechanics, sure. for example, right? So like quantum mechanics was a very, very, very well-established mathematical theory. Um, like it just, we're very good, like, you know, and obviously there are like fringe areas where there's a problem. We know it's like incompatible with relativity, for example. Um, but like um, the various interpretations of quantum mechanics is still very much up for grabs. And it's something that like philosophy works very strongly on. Right. Um, most people I know who are working on these interpretations are in philosophy departments um, and are proposing these like different interpretations of what quantum mechanics is and how it works at a fundamental level. Um, so, so this is an area where philosophy sort of like looked at what the physics was doing and you know you look at something like the Copenhagen interpretation and it's really not an interpretation. There's like nothing actually like solid there. It's just people sort of throw the word Copenhagen interpretation out. Um, and if you look at it, it's just like a mess of like contradicting ideas and thoughts. Um, so a lot of what things like philosophy do it does and what we've done is like you take these things out and you pull out these different ways of looking at these topics um, and you get things like uh, GRW, um, Bohmian quantum mechanics, um, Everettian interpretations, like these are things like that philosophers have sort of pushed forward and ended up doing most of the work on um, even though they originate in physics departments. So you had a few years ago when you were here you had a project I think you were doing this is uh, my memory from a number of years ago not good um, but you can fill in the details because it's your work right so you did this project where you were looking at what if time was not one direction but two directions mm -hmm. what if it went backwards too yeah is sort that of right? no 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 so uh, 
So the question was generally, uh, so instead of thinking of time as just like forwards and backwards, right? The question is, well, what if you could go left or right in time? Sure. Right? Whoa. Yeah. Um, yeah. Dude. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what happens? Go. <laughs> uh, well, so um, it's not an area that's gotten a lot of like work done on it, but um, the general gist seems to be that, uh, so there's a really great paper by a man named Professor Tegmark um, where he looks at uh, the ways our universe could have been, right? So he starts with like this like, lovely little graph, so one, two, three, four spatial dimensions, one, two, three, four temporal dimensions. Um, so uh, a lot of this question boils down to, well, what would a universe look like? Could it have things like us, right? Like, so all the math works out, right? You can just, in the same way that we can talk about two-dimensional spatial universes, like you can just throw an extra time dimension in your physics and like see what happens. Um, and it turns out what happens is absolute chaos. Um, cool. You get a completely non-deterministic universe. Uh, so uh, one of the ways that we uh, talk about space-time is using Cauchy surfaces. Um, so uh, a Cauchy surface delineates a flat um, plane. So we use a space and then a normal to it, which is time, right? It's the way we sort of like, and so you slice uh, hypersurfaces and each one is like one moment of time. Um, but if you allow for multiple time dimensions, you suddenly get something called a mixed hypersurface, um, which is where uh, the surface itself contains the ability to change, um, which means that you just collapse any ability to have predictability because everything you take to be a moment of time is actually an infinite number of moments of time, and the whole thing becomes this very chaotic mess. Um, there's a couple of researchers who think they found some, um, so this is Craig and Weinberg, Weinstein, one of those two, I always get his name confused. There's, there's two of them, Weinberg and Weinstein, I always get them confused. Um, uh, who think they may have found some sort of like uh, constraints you could put on these like extra temporal universes to get a deterministic universe out, but it basically seems like you get some very weird effects. But yeah, so um, they're super interesting, if only because uh, thinking about this sort of thing, um, like why our universe looks the way it does, right? This is one of the things that like, um, is sort of one of the areas that is fringe physics, right? Like physics often is sort of like what exists. And one of the interesting questions is, well, why does why do things look this way rather than other ways? Um, so why does our universe have three spatial dimensions? It could have had more or less, yeah. right? Why does it have one time dimension? It could have had more or less. Um, so looking at questions like this, I think, gives you a really cool insight into like, well, like, because it turns out like observers like us couldn't exist in these universes, right? Uh, it's not just determinism, right? Orbits don't work when you get uh, two time dimensions. Um, you get all sorts of weird remnants in your physics that mean that you just don't get systems that look like observers. Um, so yeah, it's kind of interesting to think about these like weird systems because um, I think they can tell us a lot about why our universe looks the way it does. Uh, so what's the, you said you're working on time now, more time. Yeah. What what's the thing now? You you kind of said it with your. Yeah. So um, I just got done running a conference uh, a couple of months ago on uh, the perception of time, uh, which is something I've sort of I wasn't really interested in when I arrived at UCSD, but it's something I've been getting into. Uh, my supervisor is really into it right now. Um, where uh, we got a bunch of, uh, well, so, so let me put it this way. Um, physics doesn't care about the now, right? Nowhere in fundamental physics can you insert something that looks like now, right? There's time, but you can put any number you want in the time variable, right? Like physics is this uh, atemporal prop thing, right? Um, so given that physics just doesn't have a now, it's really confusing why we think there's a now, mm. right? Like, we do, like, we're human beings. We, we perceive this, like, the past, the present, the future all divided up, and there's this, like, special present that we think we live in. Um, so one of the big questions, like, that is facing, like, time and research into time, and that sort of thing at the moment is, like, what the, 
why do we do this? Like, why do we have this perception of the now, given that physics just explicitly denies it exists? Um, so, um, well, even science, yeah. not just physics, right? Science, biology doesn't care about now. Well, yes. Does it? So the only area that this does crop up is cognitive science, right? Um, so you're right in that, like biology, like no th none of the equations we use to model the universe use this. Like, there's no like bit where you can be like, here's like time variable, and it picks out one. Yeah. Right. Like you can literally put any time you want in these sure. things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we ran a conference, and I've been thinking about a lot of stuff recently. It was a bunch of um, physicists, philosophers, and cognitive scientists all being sort of stuck in a room, um, and it's an interesting question, partially because. Um, the physicists don't think it, like don't work on it because they, you know, physics doesn't care about time. We're done, right? Um, and they sort of like offload this to the cognitive scientists who have not been told they're supposed to be working on this, mm -hmm. and so it sort of falls through the cracks of like no one's really aware that this is a thing. Um, so yeah, so we ran this group, stuck all these people in a room for three days, sorry, two days, um, asked them what the hell was going on. It's really interesting because the physicists are sort of like trying to use these like, well, entropy systems, like quantum mechanics, sort of a collapse, like you're trying to figure out some way that you can differentiate a past, present, and a future. Um, and the cognitive scientists are all like really thinking about like what are the processes in our brains that give us this perception of now, right? Like what is it about the way our brains work, like to do with even things like entropy and that sort of thing that like allow us to have this perception. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm really deeply interested in sort of like, w where does the now come from? And why should it exist, given like the way that physics works? Mm. Um, so yeah, so that's that's one area of time um, I'm working on. Um, like I said, I'm also, so that's sort of like a side project right now. It's something I've gotten into lives because my supervisor is working on a lot of it. Um, he's just written a book on the philosophy of cognitive science of time that is really good. Mm. Um, but, um, yeah, and the other area I'm sort of uh, working on, and probably hopefully we'll write a thesis on in some way, shape, or form, there should be something publishable out of this stuff, is um, the differences between space and time, right? So um, time is asymmetric, right? Like, we don't think of, like, you can only travel to the left in space, right? Like, that'd be a really weird universe if, like, everything to the right was, like, this thing that you can access. We could only, like, move to the left or move forward or move up, right? Um, so given that we talk about space-time, right, like that's what physics thinks says exists, not space and time, space-time, why does time have this weird asymmetry to it? Why is it the past inaccessible? Why do we only move one direction in time? What's this, like, system? Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm really trying to get my head around um, this directionality stuff. And there's aspects of relativity in this, you know, you get big enough black holes so you can start doing things like bending time, so maybe you could get backwards or even in time. Uh, there's aspects of quantum mechanics, a lot of the current theory involves um, that somehow collapse in quantum mechanics gives you a direction to time, right? Collapse. In almost every area of physics, time is symmetric, right? You run a physics system forward and you run it backwards, you get the same results out, right? Um, think of um, a uh, video of like billiard balls, for example, right? Like colliding on a billiard ball table. If I just took a video of that, right? A ball comes in, hits another ball and it knocks it out. I could play that both forwards and backwards and you wouldn't be able to tell me which way it was going, mm. right? Like if I just played it for you, right? And I said, which is going forward or backwards, right? Like, because it looks the same. And like, you know, you can go down to like, well, but there's friction and all that sort of thing. Well, okay, but like each of these processes is reversible according to physics, right? Physics is symmetric when it comes to time, barring some very specific things like uh, CP violation and all that sort of thing, right? And the one, the, the two big exceptions to this are entropy, Right, entropy is directional. Right, entropy only increases in the universe. But entropy is a macro uh, a macroscopic system. Right, it's statistical. 
our universe statistically goes towards this thing. It can be like, it's, it's not an absolute fundamental law. And the other area that we look like we get these sort of asymmetries is quantum mechanics. If you ascribe to collapse theories of quantum mechanics, which is in itself controversial, there's a lot of people who don't, it looks like collapse, like observation in the collapse of a quantum system is what gives you a direction to time, maybe. Well, a lot of what I'm working on or what I'm interested in is like, well, can we use these things to justify why time is different than space? Like, is this where these directionalities come from? Mm. You know, why why is time one-dimensional? You know, well, maybe it's because if you had a different universe with more than two time dimensions, we wouldn't be here, right? Like, like sort of like trying to figure out these, but why, right? Like, space can be two-dimensional. Why is the temporal two-dimensionality gives you these weird filaments? So, yeah, so I'm working on that sort of thing at the moment. That's sort of like my areas of interest. So... The areas that you're working on are asking questions that they're not just that I have not thought to ask them, but that I would never have thought to ask them. It's not like someone in biology who goes, I'm really interested in this particular species that does this odd thing and I want to know why. I'm like, yeah, I can understand how you might have come to ask that question. But your questions are just so out there. They're just crazy. It's cool. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, like, this is the thing. This is why I ended up in a philosophy department. Because I think if I was working on some of this stuff in physics, like, it, it exists. P- physicists do work on this stuff, but it's uh, less mainstream in the physics departments. Like, most people I know are working on these. Like, it's all like fringe physics, right? It's like the bits where you get to the edge of physics and go, yeah, but why? Mm-hmm. And like, it's all the weird stuff that you get to work on. That's like, so you're one of those kids this? that asks the but why question yeah. just continuously yeah. and took it a bit further than everyone else. Yeah, <laughs> this is great, Jake. That like, uh, it's only philosophy until we solve it. At which point you like hand it off to like science right <laughs> like if you solve it it's not philosophy anymore so a lot of it's just these questions are like just like you sort of poke for a while and most of them are either unanswerable right now or like um maybe never be answerable but we can we're hoping to like constrain the answer in some way but yeah i mean like i got into this because i was really interested in time travel right like i took some time travel courses and like various bits and pieces and i was like man time travel is really cool and then that sort of like was this gateway drug to like but why does the universe have time like Mm. sort of question so does that mean so i know when i watch tv shows for example and they do just terrible physics it's really really frustrating time travel is a common topic man they're all terrible does it make you really angry no for real like i was at a conference a couple of weeks ago in south korea with a bunch of like philosophy of time people and like the opening conversation the first night was all right how many consistent time travel movies can we name guys because like we've like a collected list of like ones that don't anger everyone when they watch them um, back I want this list. Dude, like, okay, so, uh, like, uh, 12 Monkeys is, like, well-known as one of the best consistent time travel movies. Like, that thing nails yeah. it. Yeah. Um, back to the Future is not even internally consistent. So, like, <laughs> like, it's got different types of time travel within the movie itself. So, like, it's a disaster zone. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, you know, um, yes, it's one of those things where, like, as with movies about physics, you just have to learn to turn off your brain when it comes to this sort of thing. So one of the interviews we had a while ago is with Margaret Wertheim, who is a uh, science journalist. She used to be at Sydney Morning Herald and now she's overseas. And she wrote a book called Physics on the Fringe. Nice. Uh, have you read it? No, I haven't. You should read it. It's fantastic. Yeah. And uh, so she used to get lots of um, uh, letters and faxes, because faxes, um, of these people who have redesigned physics or physics is wrong or Einstein Don't is wrong. Started. Yeah, I know. And so she used to, like in physics departments, we all go, oh, those guys. But she went and hung out with them and learned a little bit about them. And these guys are actually very smart. They're mostly old retired men, but they're, they're, they're quite smart and they're internally consistent with all of their theories. It's just that what they're saying is a little bit wrong. 
um, but she went to their conferences and she said they all get up and stand on the on the podium behind the lectern and say you know all of you are wrong and I'm right Einstein was wrong I'm right here's new physics uh, and then she went to some string theory conferences and everyone stands up behind the lectern and said all you guys are wrong and I'm right they're <laughs> indistinguishable <laughs> and they all think they're right yep. and they all think everyone's are idiots yep. because they don't get it and that was that was huge so that's kind of like it, it reminds me I'm glad you brought up physics on the fringe because it kind of reminds me that you're re you're thinking about stuff that some physicists would say that's the edge you know why why would you ask that let's get down to some numbers but it's i think it's important i think it's important to realize that these questions are there and they're important to ask and yeah well, i mean i think that's a common it's a real problem i think in physics that um we tend to be very dismissive of people working on stuff that's not explicitly mainstream physics um the problem is that like there's a distinct difference you know like i've i've accidentally accidentally gone to conferences that involve people talking about like precognition and you're like oh this is definitely bat shit <laughs> sorry i'll stop swearing um but like you know like it's um there is a difference right like what i'm working on like i'm i'm doing physics right like um i'm crunching numbers i'm like working through problems like I, i'm explicitly like working in physics problems right um and i think Physicists, the, the number of times I'll, I'll introduce myself to a physicist, be like, oh, I work on philosophy of physics, and look at panic in their eyes, mm -hmm. as like, because they're like, oh man, she's a crazy person, and you're like, well, no, um, there's a, a bit of a, a problem where uh, philosophy, and particularly philosophy of physics, gets a bad rap, and is sort of thrown in with like, and fringe physics in general, is sort of thrown in with like the people who work on perpetual motion machines, um, and the problem is, is that's not what we do or what how we work on things, right? Like. Um, Philosophy of physics is all about um, taking physics and poking it, right? And trying to figure out what's going on and where the holes are. And if there are holes, trying to figure out how to stop them up, right? Um, and a lot of it is like, you know, just like, let's talk about like the fringy like edges of it. But like the fringe edges of physics are always the bit where the interesting stuff is going on. Anyone who's yeah. working in physics who just, you know, you can do physics where you never touch the fringe or the edges of physics, but that's kind of boring physics, <laughs> right? Like you want to be working on like the new cutting stuff. Like this is this is what string theory is. This is what all these things are sort of like, yeah. you know. And um, more and more, I'm meeting physicists who are genuinely interested in the stuff that we're working on, right? Like uh, things like the directionality of time, right? Like it's really it's a fundamental physics question. Um, it's just that at the moment, most people working on it are sort of in philosophy departments because that's where we can get away with asking these questions. Um, if you're in a physics department, oftentimes people will sort of like really discourage you from working on this stuff because it's seen as fringe physics. Um, when in fact, I think they're really important fundamental questions. Um, and yeah, it's a, yeah, I, I often struggle to get physicists to listen to me, even though I have a physics degree, right? Like, and I'm, I work on quite hard core, right? Like I'm, I'm working on gravitational wave physics, right? Like it can be really hard to get people to realize that what we do really is like serious physics it's just that we're not situated within physics departments what we're doing is like a bit more on the edges um but so i reckon you could uh, yeah it's it's almost as if you have to the, the people do a double take so you say you know people ask you uh, what do you do uh you know the the philosophy of time you know can time go left and the answer would be no what are you talking about and then you but you all you have to do is literally just look at them and go but but could it <laughs> just wait like, and yeah, see yeah. It sort of process through their brain yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and the good ones will be like hang on a second yeah let's think about that i really i think it's fantastic 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, this is like why I love the field, right? Is like the number of times you come across a question where someone's like, well, here's a question. You're like, well, there's an obvious answer. And they're like, is there? And you're <laughs> yeah. like, oh, no. Maybe? <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, I thought I was. But now that you've pointed out all of the flaws of that, suddenly I have to figure out a better way of doing it. And often, if it's a philosopher for discussing it, there's no obvious answer, right? Yeah. Like, in the. Um, that's one of the reasons I like being in philosophy departments or the physics departments. It's like you talk about like string theory as being like, this is my interpretation, it's correct, and you're all wrong. Uh, you know, you get that in philosophy departments, but a little bit less because people are like, this is my interpretation, and I'm well aware every single one of you is about to tear this apart. <laughs> yeah. uh, but here's my justifications for why I think this. Someone please tell me. Like, it's like, it's a much more open dialogue about like the back and forth of being like, I think this is the correct answer, but I really need someone else to like back me up or check this stuff. And like, it's a much more sort of like conversational like way of doing science which I really enjoy um, so I have to confess I used to be one of those people when I was <laughs> no I've grown I've grown when I was at uni I did a philosophy uh, of science course as well and one of the first tutorials they did was the ship of Theseus or whatever. Oh yeah, the ship of Theseus. Ship of Theseus, where thesis. where you um you know if the ship has a broken plank, you replace the plank, yep. and is it the same ship? Yep. And we spent hours talking about this, <laughs> and I just I, I was just the guy that said, um yeah, it's the same ship, whatever, define it, yes. <laughs> and then they were all like, but is it? <laughs> like, uh, okay, no, it's not. Whatever, make your decision, go with that. Yeah. Decide and move on. <laughs> I was I was a physicist. I was dealing with ones and zeros. You know, this, it, it's this or that, nothing else. <laughs> but is it? But is it? <laughs> and they kept, and I, I was so frustrated. And then they went, okay, we've solved that one. Now the sock, and you darn the sock. But is it the same? Ah, oh, it's this again. Yeah. And I just wanted to say, yes, it's the sock. Can we move on? Yeah. Um, but uh, this end of philosophy of science, I love it. I love it where you just say, let's think of something that's that no one else has thought of and, and poke it, yeah, like you said. see if it can work. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, and I think, um, yeah, I mean, like, like, the thing is that, like, all these questions, I think, can be very frustrating for physicists. Like, well, not all. Like, I, I met plenty of physicists who are, like, really excited about this stuff, right? Like, when I was doing my physics degree here, like, I spent hours and hours, like, hanging out with uh, various members of the physics department, like, really debating time travel, right? Like, <laughs> like physicists have these conversations. Yeah. It's often, like, 2 a.m. when they're drunk, right? <laughs> like, like, that's what I, like, this is what my degree is. My degree is the things that I talked about at yes. 2 a.m. when I was drunk as a physicist, the things I now get paid to study. That's amazing. Like, that's great. That's all I want to do. But, like, um... Yeah, but the thing is, like, these things are actually important, yeah. right? Like, it's not, uh, and it's not just in this abstract, like, what if this way? But, like, you talk about something like the interpretation of quantum mechanics, right? Or, like, the work's being done on, like, black hole dynamics and, like, and entropy. And, like, there are papers in the philosophy, field of philosophy on, like, whether energy is a fundamental thing in physics. And there's a lot of reason to think it's not, right? And these conversations aren't really happening in physics departments, they're happening in philosophy departments. But, like, that's a really important question. Like, is energy a fundamental thought property of the universe? Like, e equals mc squared is, like, turns out to be very limited in scope when it comes to a lot of areas, right? Like, there's these, like, really big problems that, like, and you, you throw a physicist at a physics conference and oftentimes they'll come out being, like, uh-oh, Mm. Right, like, because like you'll they'll suddenly see these talks. People who are like, well, like we've spotted a bunch of problems. <laughs> um, have you guys thought about this? And half time physicists are like, no, oh my god, oh, yeah. like you know, like the problem is it really does inform you know, like, what interpretation of quantum mechanics you use radically redefines the types of questions you ask about quantum mechanics and where you approach these problems, yeah. the way you look to solve them, right? If you think that collapse happens, that's going to very much determine the types of experiments you do. If you don't think collapse happens, right? If you're someone from like um, an Everettian like system, right? Where you think there's many branching universes, right? Like that's going to change the way you think about physics, yeah. right? Like um, these sort of questions, like, and the problem is that they're often very unexamined, right? By people who are doing the research. Um, people just... 
there's a real problem, I think, in physics, but also in science, where scientists take themselves to be doing an objective project, right? Like, science is objective. It is, right? It's the goal of science, to be objective. The problem is that it's scientists doing the projects, and scientists are not objective, right? Like, we're human beings. We have these implicit ideas and biases and ideas and, like, assumptions we go into the projects with. Um, and if you don't examine them, um, that can mean real problems for the types of physics you're doing, right? It can radically reroute the way that you end up talking about these problems. Um, so, I uh, agree. Like, so we're trained to control variables mm -hmm. and we control variables that we can measure. So you, you, you make sure that that one doesn't change and that one doesn't yep. change. You're, you're even trained to make assumptions or fewer people question those assumptions. Yeah, and I mean, it's the people who question these assumptions that tend to lead towards scientific revolution, right? Like, yeah. this is what Einstein did when he, like, came up with relativity. He took a bunch of assumptions we had and was like, what if I ignore those for a while uh, Yeah, and, yeah. like, see what turns up, right? Like, yeah. the, the um, questioning of assumptions is really fundamental to the way we do science. Yeah. Um, and, like, I, uh, when I did my physics degree, no one told me that there were multiple ways to talk about quantum mechanics. Like, no one said that. And I got to my PhD and someone was like, you know, like, which one are you? Like, what do you think is correct? And I was like, there's a choice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, what do you mean? I thought, I thought quantum mechanics was just fixed. And they're like, no, the math is fixed, but we have no idea what actually exists at a fundamental level. Like, it could be, you know, do you think that there's a branching series of universes? Do you think that, like, there's these, like, Bohmian, do you, like, do you think particles that are guided by a wave function is the correct way of going? Do you think the wave function itself is real? Like, what do you think is real? And I was like, uh... I'm going to have to get back to you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it just turns out that my like professors at uh, Sydney University just like you know taught me physics and they they particularly I think they used a GRW interpretation of quantum mechanics right they talked about the wave function as a real thing yes. it's like great but like there's plenty of people out there who think that that's probably in fact if yeah. you're in the UK you're much more likely to be an Everettian of some sort if you're in a physics department and if you're into something like a Bohmian interpretation or you know like these other bits and pieces are right? like deeply fascinating to me like I feel like all my physics has sort of like advanced a lot since I hit my weirdly my PhD in philosophy. I love it. I'm I love feeling it. like everything that I thought I knew about physics is a lie. You're welcome. That's kind of depressing. <laughs> yeah, that's the perfect Thanks. answer. Thanks for that. <laughs> everything I know is false. You're welcome. Yep. <laughs> I mean, this is just like the way you do physics. I remember finishing high school and being like, well, I know all about Newton mechanics, right? Newtonian mechanics. And I got to first year of university and they were like, all of it you know is wrong. Here's the correct solution. I was like, great. And they hit second year, they're like, everything we taught you in first year was wrong. Here's your yeah. correct way. And then you get third year and they're like, I gotta break it to you. And yeah. we're like, yeah. <laughs> I feel like every single time I do a project, like the next step is like, oh man, like it turns out I was wild. And then you hit the top level and you're like, we don't know anything. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I tell that to students all the time. Like in first year, we tell you high school is wrong. Second yep. year, same thing. You know, we just update the model. Third yep. year, just update the model. And you do a PhD and they say, what's the answer? And you say, I don't know, but I've got another model. Yeah. <laughs> so the question that we ask every guest on this show, the question, uh -huh. the important question is, what does STEM mean to you? Okay. Um, so we're going to give you a, I guess a kind of technical answer. So, I mean, STEM for me is this like collective project we do as a human race, right? Like, um, it's this uh, attempt at getting at some fundamental truth about nature and we do it and we sort of come up with what we think are the best ways and systems of doing this project, right? Things like uh, blind studies and um, controlled variables and like these sort of like, this is overarching project that we as like a group think is probably the best way and probably at this point is the best way to like figure out what's actually there, what's actually happening. Some sort of way of getting at some sort of underlying truth of the universe. That was a deep answer. I like it. Yeah, I love it. The cool. pro there's process in there. There's truth. All all of the like good buzzwords that yeah, involve yeah, yeah. the. 
Do you know that you're one of the only people who has not answered that question with, hmm, STEM. That's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> it's because I'm a philosopher and I really <laughs> want to, I don't want to use those things because I'm not in that list of... <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. No, I'm not part of that. Yeah, yeah. We can, we can it's exclusionary, yeah. like... Well, well, it's no, no, it's STEM with a silent P. Right? Oh, yeah. there we go. It's like STEM. STEM, so yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> one of the two. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to... Okay, the other question. Tom. Here we go. How do we increase the science literacy of everybody, not just the already engaged? I mean, I guess this is one of the big challenges facing science today, right? The fact that like there's an ever-increasing divide between people who do science and the rest of the public, right? It's certainly in like perception. There's a perceptual idea, and it's um, I think one of the biggest things we need to face, like, figure out about this setting is like there is that divide, right? Like society tends to think there's the scientists who work on this hard, difficult project called science. And like it's a useful project, but it's a hard project. And then there's everyone else, right? Um, and I don't know if there's any one easy, small like way of dealing with this, right? Like you can talk about like getting kids more involved at school, like what you guys do, right? Like trying to do science outreach and trying to like get people engaged from a young age. Um, but a lot of I think is just going to come from breaking down that barrier, right? Like every time I tell someone I work on philosophy or physics, like 90% of the time the response is, that sounds really difficult, you must be very smart. And you're like, well, I, but like, it's not that hard, right? Like, it, it, like you know, there's, there's a it's series of processes. It's, it's challenging in interesting ways, but like, yeah. you know, I'll, I work with some very difficult yes. math, but not all physicists do and not yeah, all science yeah, yeah, yeah. does, right? Like there's all sorts of like, um, and I think a lot of the reason we have this really strong divide, like why I was like trying to get people engaged is they feel like they can't, right? Like this, it's hard, it's difficult, right? And so doing things like what you guys are doing, like these, these outreach things, like podcasts and put science in like easier and simpler ways, right? Like ways people can engage with, like, that, like people need to feel like they can engage with science, even if it's just in a pop science way, right? Like seeing that like, um, like gravitational wave discoveries, right and feeling like they can just like read an article online about it and like it's interesting and fun and lots of things they're gonna have to be like well it's technical and like difficult and like that's what the scientists do like trying to figure out ways to break down that barrier like psychologically between like us and everyone else is probably the only way you're gonna get especially like once people are out of school and you don't have access to that like enforced learning environment like and i don't know if there's any easy simple way of doing that other than just like every time someone turns to you and tells you that science is hard and they hated it in high school telling them that maybe they should not think that <laughs> you know what would help this is my new theory based on what you've just been saying in pretty much every tv show or movie or any form of pop culture if there's a scientist someone who is knowledgeable about the world yep they're very rarely a normal person yes they're always super smart talking in jargon can do crazy maths in their head yep always is a bit quirky in their personality and they need to start in pop culture portraying scientists as normal people who have normal lives but do science as part of their normal lives. Yeah, I mean, bring back, like, Jurassic Park. Like, that was a great movie when it came to, like, it was just a bunch of totally normal people who were, like, you know, working on science-y stuff. I mean, some of them were slightly quirky, but, like, yeah. you know, it was, like, they seemed like people rather than, like, yeah. you know, the Big Bang Theory model where everyone's, like, kind of awkward and, yeah. like, very, like, crazy smart and therefore unable to communicate with people. Like, almost everyone... I know very few people actually in sciences who are like that, right? Like everyone is just like a totally normal, friendly person who's like their day job happens to involve data analysis for like astrophysics, mm -hmm. right? Like, yeah, no, that sounds like a, you're right. Like we really need to start working on like the public perception and a lot of that will come down to like media. One of the best characters, I've, I've seen this and I kind of agree with it, but the best scientific characters in a TV show is Ross from Friends. 
Yeah. He was an archaeologist. Uh, but they didn't really cover much of what he did at work. He was just known as an archaeologist, but a normal guy with normal problems and, you know, relationship things. And he was a goofball, you know, all of that. I think that's that's a really good start. Like, yeah. you don't hear friends credited enough for their <laughs> science outreach. <laughs> the progressive <science>. like, <laughs> view of science, yes. I really liked the female scientist in Stargate, Samantha Carter. Carter. She was very smart. And they did make that a thing. Like she was, she was very smart, which doesn't super help the cause. But she was also still normal. She didn't go off and talk in jargon, mm-hmm. and wasn't, you know, weird with issues communicating with people. And and I mean, she did a lot for women in STEM, uh, which is really awesome. But she was also still just a person. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought that was really good that they, like, her character. I think is like that. Yeah, sci-fi in general is generally pretty good for this sort of thing. You think something like Star Trek. Like yeah, a lot of the characters there were like engineers and like scientists, and you still got to see their everyday like they were people as well. Like yeah, uh, Star Trek was good because science was such a big part of everything that those ships did. Mm. Yeah, it was it was the thing they were doing. They were out exploring for science. Yeah, but here's a question, and I since Vanessa asked this, I've been asking myself as well, mm. and it it got really deep at one moment. <laughs> I was. This, this ended up as an 11 o'clock discussion at home. Does Star, does Star Trek actually engage anyone, though? Does, does people watch Star Trek and then think, I'm going to enroll in a science course? Or I'll, I'll say it another way. I don't know. Maybe this is going to get too much. But you said you got really interested in time travel because you learned a course at university in a physics degree about time travel. Why were you there in the first place? What was it that got you here? Because one, at one point you were a general public. You weren't a scientist. Yeah, and I mean, that's fair, right? I didn't... I mean, I've always loved... I mean, I've always been a massive geek. Um, I always really liked Star Trek and Star Wars and yeah. stuff when I was a kid. Um, but it wasn't... It was only tangentially that it got me into this. I, I did a... I came to Sydney University because I was um, really interested in the way the world worked at a fundamental level. Right. I just want to know, like, my parents are scientists, they're biologists, um, and I knew I didn't want to do biology, but I want to do science of some sort, and I really was curious about the world. Um, so I did enrolled in physics and philosophy, because I figured those are the two best areas to figure out these answers. Yeah. Um, and then it was purely coincidence, uh, well, sort of, like, you know, I, um, I ended up taking a metaphysics course, because it's an obvious, like, point where the two of them meet. Um, and then that one started talking about, like, what time is, and, like, that's sort of how I got into this area. It wasn't, like, these other sort of, like questions uh, like it, it wasn't like star wars that got me into like yeah. philosophy of time stuff it was like yeah it was it was a constant university i guess it was the point which i realized it could be an area of study like it was always stuff i thought was fun but realizing yeah. that i could actually actually do something yeah there was actually it? like oh and people actually work on this yeah. that sort of like got me onto that sort of thing yeah i mean i was really into star trek uh, in high school, I was like the only one in my school that was. Is that why you got into cool. physics? But I don't think it's what got me into physics. Yeah. I think the fact that I liked sci-fi made me go, hmm, maybe I am a sciencey person. Yeah. But I don't think it wasn't because Star Trek's not realistic in terms of what science is. Um, if anything, something like Stargate is actually more realistic because it's at least set on Earth and they do science and it's sort of a bit more like this is set in the modern day and it's something that you know potentially could be happening. Um, but I mean, for me, a lot of it was that my parents were both very sciencey, and we had science books at home, appropriate, you know, like age-appropriate books from when I was quite little. Yeah. Just the whole way through, there was just always science around, and so I always just wanted to learn more. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if maybe like there's something to say for like uh, sci-fi in general, making science look 
kind of sexy. It's like it's not like I did it like you know it's exciting. Like uh, so, you know I think about Star Trek and I'm not like and they were scientists and that was why I want to be scientist. But it's like and they were like in the future with cool technology and cool yep. like and I could physics. I could get involved in helping them get yeah, to that yeah, future because right? like, that's like that's the excitement of it was like yeah. it wasn't like I want to do science because they did good science. I want to be on a spaceship. Like, yeah, it was like I I want to be on a spaceship and it turns out being an engineer working on spaceships is the only way to get that to be a reality so like i wonder how much that's like yeah i think that those sort of shows the ones that make science just part of it that aren't aren't about the scientists being stereotypical scientists but they're being normal people where science is just a part of their daily life that those shows can do a lot just for making people realize that science is important and interesting even if it's not specifically going to get them into that field of science. Yeah, and I mean, I do worry sometimes of this, like, uh, modern portrayal of, like, like Big Bang Theory style, like, this sort of, like, very, like, hyper-intelligent, like, awkward people. Like, people look at that and go, oh, I'm not like that, therefore so I, I shouldn't be, be in scientist. science, right? Yeah, yeah, so, like, that's that's a problem because, like, and then you look at, like, It's quite off-putting. I mean, yeah. sometimes, like, I quite enjoyed the earlier seasons of the show because I felt it was more targeted at people with a physics slash science background and then it really went downhill and became super stereotyped and the humor changed and became very much much more lowbrow and it got to the point where it was embarrassing like I would meet people who watched the show and then they'd find out that I was a physicist and would be like oh like Sheldon yeah but like a girl Sheldon yeah it's like no I'm yeah. no that's not what I'm like yeah right like I feel like that really is a like if anything stuff like that really is a barrier towards like you know like yeah. there are shows where you can single out like you know I'm thinking of like CSI or something right you got like the tech guy in the lab who does all the yep. like, re- like you know like you can sort of see how that might encourage people like oh that's like really cool like you're this special but like yeah I, I do worry that that's something really if you don't feel like you fit into the mold of the like nerdy like slightly socially awkward yeah and they always have to be like even those sort of csi shows like um ncis with abby yeah like she was cool they didn't have just someone who you'd be considered just as normal everyday person that would be a character on a show yeah you know what does do a good job actually is i think it's called helix um it's a about an outbreak of a disease and there's a lot of what we were calling science porn because there's all these like close-up shots of them doing science experiments with beakers and conical flasks. It was all actually quite good science. It wasn't just them swirling a thing of blue liquid going, oh, look at me doing science. But all the people in that show were scientists going to investigate this disease outbreak who were all also normal people dealing with their normal lives, like yeah. they had love life issues and all these sorts of things. And they weren't just like these super dweeby science people they were just also very smart they were still normal people dealing with the situation around them and that show i think was actually really good as a portrayal of science it was much more realistic and i remember watching it going ah i kind of want to do this field of science now because it was not physics at all i was like it's kind of it's kind of interesting yeah increasing the visibility of people like that in media and like online is just like like, thing, like really like honestly the things you guys like we're just chatting now right we're a bunch of very smart scientist type people super smart super oh, smart yeah. i'm so super smart. smart um who like <laughs> but it's just like like stereotypes would say that like we're a certain type of person right and like 
things like and I do think things like podcasts and stuff are making it a bit more accessible like people who are clearly normal people talking about science mm. makes maybe a we, difference maybe we should go the other way so have uh, TV shows or something where all the scientists are normal and there's super nerdy English people yeah yeah but the oddball <laughs> English guy writers oddball <laughs> um, English professors yeah yeah no, but I, they probably have those. Like um, Giles in Buffy always yeah. struck me as a super nerdy English professor. So obviously they have a type as well. We need like... You need someone who's like an accountant who's just like really awkward. Well, I think that's a stereotype. Oh. Somebody who's like it's a social media like advisor. Sports like, people. Super awkward sportsmen. Yeah. 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 There we go. Super nerdy stereotype. <laughs> but they're like world-class football players yeah <laughs> yeah that's what we want i want to see a show like that where the <laughs> right. football players are the nerds and the scientists are the like normal everyday they're just people. normal people yeah. yeah and they roll their eyes oh, the football players oh, <laughs> see they go again yeah <laughs> yeah that's what i want to see i'd watch that okay. what is your question for our next guest <laughs> yeah so um i was thinking about this so like obviously my area is um i mean the humanities department right mm. um but like i've been saying like i think that like the humanities and like we divide the humanities and the sciences up into these two areas um and i think there's much more of an overlap than particular people in science tend to think there is all right um there's a great joke i saw there was uh, a bunch of physicists talking about how physics is really the fundamental like it's the most important science the most like fundamental and someone from like cognitive science being like yeah but what organ did you choose to think this with <laughs> right like like you know, like there's some, like, like people we tend to think these are like hardcore like areas aren't impacted by like the language we use or that science is something that we've developed as a society that the broadly like you know like there's all these like areas of humanity that i think are really relevant so we talk and do science um so i guess my question is something along the lines of like how do we get these two talking to each other again right like how do we sort of like like in the humanities do it as well right both sides just like really see themselves having this like divide down the middle you're either a humanities person or a science person and like I don't know if someone can want a good suggestion for how to fix that one, but like, yeah, is, is there some yeah, way right. we can start? Like, are they important to each other? Like, how do they relevantly like? Like, it, each other? not even more than talking to each other. So instead of the f the physics guys, they come up with a uh, with a theory. Okay, we've solved this thing. I want to I want to know what the philosophy people think of this. Like, no no one has ever said that. I don't think. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, and just like you know, I. You know, get the linguists talking to the physicists and yeah. the biologists, right? Like the language we use around biology and so forth is incredibly gendered, for example, right? And this is an assumption that we don't talk <laughs> about a lot. Yeah, right? like, I just said physics, guys. <laughs> right? Like there's always really good examples of like, um, like, you know, we're human beings doing science and human beings are like, we use certain languages and we use yeah. certain social structures and like all these things that are seen as like either the soft sciences or the humanities, like kind of do seem really relevant because we're the ones doing the like objective i just put quotation marks for that for the can see yeah. um sciences very interesting i'm intrigued to hear the yeah. next person's thoughts on this so uh, can i can i try ask, asking your question again yeah maybe you that was like a five minute long <laughs> diatribe about uh so you just have to play this section yeah, of yeah, the, yeah, the question is i'm just gonna play the clip yeah um <laughs> How do you get the scientists and the humanities to work together? Yeah. Because yeah. it used to be the same. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing, right? You look, even like Newton was a, I study him in philosophy, right? Like yeah. I've just done an entire course where we read a bunch of stuff by Leibniz who, and Newton, the guys who invented calculus, right? On like their philosophy. These yeah. guys, like, you know, it was used, physics used to be the natural sciences, like these, these natural philosophers, right? It was only a few hundred years ago, these two areas massively divided. Yeah. Um, you know? 
Aristotle was one of the first physicists and the first biologists and yeah. like one of the fundamental like philosophy and humanities people, right? Like, so um, the divide we've got today is very much a recent thing. Um, yeah, cool. Possibly not as healthy as interesting. You could be for the various fields involved. We like to divide things up, and I'm a little worried that we we're like our silos. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we do. Even when we try and break down silos. Um, by making acronyms like STEM, it's just another silo. Yep. Well, then a bunch of other extra groups try and get involved in our st- acronyms and then <laughs> I get all annoyed and don't want to share my acronym with other people. But the silent P is going in, right? The silent That's P the, is yeah, definitely yeah, yeah, part of it. All right, so here's a new question. Right. What do you want me to go and find out more about? What gets you excited? Everyone's a nerd, right? Everyone, some people are car nerds or sports nerds or politics nerds, science nerds, whatever. Some Fine. people yeah. all of those yep. things. All those really what, cool. what are you a nerd about? What do you love to know about? Like when I press stop, what do you want me to go and learn more about? Yeah, so uh, I mean, the stereotype, the reason I'm studying is a time travel, right? Like I think time travel is deeply fascinating. Even though a lot of my research isn't related to it anymore, like I still really love reading like books on time travel and like time travel narratives and that sort of thing, like talking about the consistency. So like time travel is the obvious one because that's sort of potentially related to my work. But um, if I'm picking something that's like not like literally my thesis, I'm really deeply fascinated by biology. So uh, like I said earlier, my parents are biologists um, and I grew up with a lot of animals and plants and stuff in the house. Um, and I've realized in the last few years, like I actually have a deep fascination for weird animals. Right, like I have just come back from a week hiking in Borneo in the uh, rainforest, and I spent 90% of the time just desperately searching for tiny weird insects. Mm. Insects are really freaking cool. <laughs> like they're really weird and wonderful. I, I love these like strange ecosystems and these like odd creatures that sort of like come up and like, like um, yeah. So just like I think one of the things I really nerd out about is just like really strange and unusual like octopuses and like squids and like deep sea anglerfishes deep and, like, sea animals are so cool deep sea animals are so they are cool so weird. they are like there's just something like it's just insane this is the thing like you see like you know i did this trip and i was like ah oh, there are monkeys and that's really cool but like did you see that moth <laughs> like like you're like mammals are awesome and all that sort of thing and there's some really interesting weird ones but like honestly like underwater and like the insects in particular like are just like deeply fascinating to me and i think there's something that you know when you are a kid you learn about the big animals the big land animals yep. and maybe whales sharks and dolphins yep. and that's about all you learn about you don't learn about some of these really really cool ones that you, you kind of miss out i mean i didn't learn about anglerfish until probably finding nemo came out and then we wrote a deep sea show for questacom when i worked there that was when i first really learned about some of these animals that i just didn't know existed and they're so cool <laughs> yeah i mean like you know the, the hunt for the giant squid is like so cool <laughs> i love okay i'm on board um, <laughs> you had so me at... Uh, the the uh, answer is weird insects. You should go Google, just, just put weird <laughs> insects into your Google search and see what pops up. And yeah, like, cool. Do that. Google's totally going to see a spike in search <laughs> yeah. weird insects now after this podcast comes out. Yeah, the, the They'll be like, mm, everyone's Googling weird insects. Deep social influences in- that is <laughs> this uh, podcast. <laughs> what I love about that is how we don't know so many things. Um, you know, y- your job is to sit and think about questions that no one else, no one has thought about, and you can do that with biology too. You can just sit there and, and think. You know, I, I heard someone say that. So it's not quite small animals, but like bacteria and stuff. You can go out into a, a one square meter, you know, patch of dirt somewhere, and probably statistically find a couple of species of bacteria that, that we've been never been discovered yeah. before. Yeah, um, it's like fungus. 
we only we've only described some tiny percentage yeah. we, we that we think of yes. all the different fungi that exist in the world. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. There's just so little we know about it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, I, I sometimes regret that I don't have much more time to dedicate to various academic pursuits. Like, I'd love to do a degree in, like, you know, there's all sorts of other... Like, Bachelor of Insects. Well, this is the thing, like, <laughs> going back to, like, the um, old school stuff, right? Like, talking about, like, Newton and, like, Aristotle. Like, these guys, to some extent, were experts in almost every area, right? Like, yeah. um, Aristotle was the first person to start classifying biological, like, groups. Um he discovered a bunch of cool physics principles. He was a geometer. He was a philosopher. He worked on ethics. Like, hmm. I Can you imagine having him over for dinner. Like a conversation I mean, like, with him would just be really amazing. Cool, but like I kind of regret that I now live in a stage of my life where I have to pick one. Yeah. Right. Like I can't. Like you know, I, you know, a couple hundred years ago, I could have been at Oxford. Well, I wouldn't have as a woman, but um, <laughs> I could have been at Oxford if I was a dude, a white dude, um, and I could have been an expert at like twelve different subjects. I could have been a language expert. Like I could have done all sorts of cool stuff. But I'm kind of sad that I feel like I'm. I mean, and again, like this is probably one reason I escaped to philosophy because like I've just finished taking courses on like what happiness is and what artificial intelligence is and like ethics and like I really like the fact that I'm now in a field that's just like. Literally anything is open to be questioned. Sure. And I know someone probably who questions almost all, every single individual piece. Small animal fact. Um, I learned that bees, the queen bee has exactly the same DNA as all of the other bees because they're all clones basically. But has exactly the same DNA but looks completely different and acts completely different. Isn't that cool? That's really cool. Like they have the royal honey, like they get given this royal honey and that changes them like epigenetically changes them. Wow. I didn't know that. Exactly that cool. the same. Did Did you see that video that came out a while back where someone did a like really careful recording of a bunch of bees hanging out, and it turns out when bees bump to each other, they go oop. Yeah. <laughs> like it's really cute. Like it's just like it's just like it's like, like little record. Find go find the video. It's just really cute. These these bees just like oop 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 oop. <laughs> so they all just like uh, just bump into each other. It's really cute. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. There you go. Good answer. Yay. Cool. Nice. What fun. Small animals. Yeah. Small animals are really cool. And okay. if you find one of those small animals and bacteria, you can name them. I actually, theoretically, have an insect named after me. Really? Yeah. Uh, my dad uh, is working to classify the mayflies of Tasmania um, to be published. So this is not yet official. But uh, when I was a kid, I helped him find some. So there's a theoretically going to be an insect named the Ansii thresheri. Oh, my God. Awesome. That is one of the coolest things I've yeah. heard. Nice. Yeah. Can you can you send that to me when that gets published? Yeah, sure. When, when, he, when he gets when we finally gets around to publishing the, <laughs> the book with all the classifications in it, I'll let you know. But yeah, so me and all my family members have like yeah theoretically got insects named after us. So at good. Some point. Um, do right. you have anything else, Christine? I I do not. I I think I'm probably going to go home and have nightmares tonight about <laughs> what time is. Um, <laughs> but I don't have any further questions. I won't be able to go to my kids. Oh, guys, it's bedtime. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, bed now? Oh, yeah. Is it? Oh, what is it? What is time? Where what does is it come it? from? Why is time? <laughs> Who is time? You're welcome. You're, look, I'm, I'm glad that, like, I'm not... See, this is the thing. Like, now I'm not the only person, like, really worried about these things. That's always nice. <laughs> Misery loves company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you just you spend a lot of time being like, oh, my God, how does any of it work? Maybe none of it works. What is, what is the, uh, like, the lamest joke that always goes down well at one of these philosophy of time conferences there must be heaps Man. like all these bad time puns it's we we're, we're do they really say things like is it time for dinner oh yet God. and then everyone goes oh, oh. oh. ho 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 <laughs> no i mean 
So uh, academia, I don't know what physics is like in terms of this actually, but like philosophy is wildly peppered with people who write papers purely because they've come up with a good pun title. <laughs> um, physics is pretty keen on the puns, I think. We yeah? excel at acronyms as well. Very good there at acronyms, yeah, particularly yeah, no, backronyms though. Backronyms where they're like, for sure. Well, that's a cool word. How can I use it? <laughs> Um, yeah, but uh, so uh, someone I know gave a talk at this recent, most recent conference on future discounting. So uh, humans' abilities to just like, we're really good at procrastination, right? And putting off something and agreeing to stuff in the future that we shouldn't agree to right now. Or, like that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and it was a talk entitled, um, why did past me ever agree to give this talk right now? <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, that's very good. Yeah. Mo- most philosophy of time conferences center around like, all right, who's seen a good time travel movie recently? Like, what can I add to my list of things that won't infuriate me as I like work through and watch them um, so we know most of them are bad which is the best one apart from 12 monkeys oh man all right uh good time travel movies and media uh Harry Potter weirdly like works um the time turners are pretty accurate Dirk Gently Solistic Detective Agency season nice. one solid time travel what else uh Primer is debatably there's some interpretations of Primer that involve consistent time travel and some huh. that do not very confusing, but I enjoyed yes. it. Um, as someone who's an expert in time travel, very confusing, but I enjoyed it. Good. It's probably better um, to not be an expert in yeah. time travel for it. Maybe just go, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm not going to think about that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Good movie. We're done. Um, weirdly, I think the Star Trek, when they go back to the 80s to save the whales, might actually be self-consistent. Okay. That one's a surprisingly good example, despite the fact it's a terrible movie. <laughs> I mean, it's great, but yeah, that one's not too bad. There's a couple more that are like floating around that I can't um, think of right now. The first introduction to time travel I had was when my dad convinced me that we are all time travelers. <laughs> he says, you can, you can travel back in time. You just got to remember back in time <laughs> and then you're, you're kind of back there. Or he said, we're all time traveling into the future, going at a whopping speed of one second per second. Um, and then after that, everything was time travel. So I was reading Choose Your Own Adventure books and I was like, I can travel back in time in this book. <laughs> I used to love that. Yeah, I mean, I remember one of the facts that blew my mind when I was, like, first started university was someone was talking about our relativity and saying, like, astronauts are time travelers. Yeah. Like, like, they lose time. They travel at a different, like, they move into the future at a faster pace than we do. Yes. Like, that's really weird. Like, people like, time travel whenever happened. You're like, well, no. Time Actually travel to the past is really difficult. Time yeah. travel to the future is really easy. You just go fast enough. Well, Frank Borman sent, I'll, I'll find it too and link to it. Frank Borman, Apollo 8 astronaut, sent a uh, overtime sheet, um, to <laughs> like claim sheet to NASA because he was because he went to the moon and back, travelled faster through time with special and general relativity, figured out that he was actually younger, no, <laughs> older than everyone, and had worked in more than everyone else. <laughs> so it was like 0.007 of a cent or something. Did they pay it? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I hope they the did. Facts. Yeah, I really hope they did. If only for just like uh, yeah, just that paperwork must yeah. have been amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Well, thank you for coming in today. It's yeah. been yeah. a very yeah. interesting I think conversation. We're, I think we're out of time. Out of no. time. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so with that terrible part, yeah, we might leave it there. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Ansi. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah.
This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.